Part three of Chapter five of A Student's History of American Literature by William Simons. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Reading by Matt Perard. Chapter five, Part three. James Russell Lowell, eighteen nineteen to eighteen ninety one. James Russell Lowell, the youngest of the New England group, and the most versatile, was born in Cambridge, February 22, 1819. His American ancestry dated from colonial times, and, like Emerson's, was throughout representative of the academic class. His father, grandfather, and great-grandfather were graduates of Harvard College. It was Lowell's grandfather who in seventeen eighty introduced into the bill of rights of the state the clause abolishing slavery in massachusetts an uncle was the founder of the lowell institute in boston the poet's father was pastor of the west church in that city mrs lowell a woman of intensely imaginative mind a lover of poetry and music was of Scotch parentage, her father having been a native of the Orkney Islands. The home of the Lowells, appropriately known as Elmwood, was situated not far beyond the Craigie House, somewhat off the main avenue of travel, a large mansion, surrounded by trees, a bowery loneliness, which drew the bluebirds, orioles, and robins. Beyond, the meadows, a stretch of marsh and the charles river a stripe of nether sky now hid by rounded apple trees between whose gaps the misplaced sail sweeps bellying by now flickering golden through a woodland screen ah this is a pleasant place i wonder who lives here what little boy his father said one day to james as they returned from a drive and passed through the gate of elmwood within the house were books rev mr lowell's well-selected library among which the boy browsed knowingly as a child he was read to sleep from the fairy queen and rehearsed its adventurous episodes to his playmates after the first study days had been passed in attendance at a classical school in cambridge where latin and greek were the principal branches taught young lowell entered harvard college in eighteen thirty four two years before longfellow took up the duties of his professorship here lowell found further opportunity for wide and varied reading in his own words he read almost everything except the textbooks prescribed by the faculty after several whimsical breaches of academic discipline lowell near the close of the senior year was rusticated being required to make his residence in concord there to remain until commencement day his father and mother were at the time absent in europe the young man had already been elected class poet and during his enforced stay in the pleasant village where emerson had recently settled the student poet worked upon his production with emerson who was then thirty-five lowell now made personal acquaintance walking and talking with him 
one of the events of his college course had been the delivery of the famous phi beta kappa address by emerson at the preceding commencement in eighteen thirty seven which had profoundly impressed the minds of the young men who heard it still this independent youth who always persisted in thinking for himself was at this time by no means a docile disciple in his class poem he satirized the transcendentalists along with the abolitionists although before many months elapsed he allied himself strenuously with both the poem which he was unable to present in person on class day was privately printed and distributed among his friends the year lowell graduated says edward everett hale we were as sure as we are now that in him was first-rate poetical genius and that here was to be one of the leaders of the literature of the time in his choice of a profession lowell selected the law and in eighteen forty was admitted to the bar lowell's verse received its first potent impulse in his love for maria white the sister of one of his classmates a girl of remarkable beauty and rare mental gifts herself a poet by nature and an enthusiast in various humanitarian reforms their engagement began in eighteen forty before the twelfth month ended lowell published his first volume a collection of poems with the title a year's life during the next three years he wrote busily finding a ready market for his poems and sketches in leading periodicals like the boston miscellany the dial the united states magazine and graham's then edited by poe between poe and lowell there was at this time an interesting correspondence poe referring to lowell's work in terms most appreciative meanwhile the young lawyer had not found the legal profession much to his taste and after three years waiting for the first client of whom he wrote humorously lowell abandoned law and elected literature in january eighteen forty three he started a magazine of his own the new magazine was an ambitious enterprise the first number contained contributions by lowell poe hawthorne and elizabeth barrett afterward mrs browning had it not been for a serious difficulty with his eyes which compelled him to go to new york for treatment lowell's first editorial experience might have been longer as it was the venture came to an untimely close with its third issue the pioneer expired and its editor was left eighteen hundred dollars in debt at the end of the year lowell published a volume of poems which included two or three of market excellence the shepherd of king admetus an incident in a railway car and rikis being among the number in december eighteen forty four lowell was married for a few months thereafter he was employed in philadelphia as an editorial writer on the pennsylvania freeman the paper edited by whittier a few years earlier in the spring of eighteen forty five the lowells returned to cambridge passing through new york lowell stopped to call upon poe but the visit proved one of embarrassment he found poe as recorded by mrs clem 
not quite himself. Life at Elmwood was now delightfully idyllic, despite the limitations of a small and somewhat uncertain income. Longfellow, although twelve years the senior, was already a congenial friend, and the social circle of the college community was enlarged through the easy nearness of Boston. The poet himself was fairly embarked on his career as a man of letters, and his reputation as a writer was firmly established. At the close of 1844, Lowell published a volume of essays entitled Conversations on Some of the Old Poets. This volume, and also the poems of the previous year, were republished in London. The ardor of Lowell in the political movement of these pregnant years must not be overlooked, for it is vitally connected with an important phase of his literary work. The interest of his wife in some of the reform enterprises so numerous in the early forties had enlisted the interest of the poet in these same reforms, but definite inspiration came with the development of his own democratic instincts and his own humanitarian sympathies. In 1843 he became an abolitionist and an ardent supporter of that movement which had won Whittier as its champion ten years before. In 1843, Lowell wrote and published the Stanzas on Freedom and the sonnet Wendell Phillips. The present crisis, that superb climax of lyric eloquence, came in 1845. For twenty years, the solemn monitory music of this poem never ceased to re-echo in public halls. Its thrilling lines served as text for the leading orators of the North, Phillips and Sumner quoted its stanzas in their impassioned addresses. Its resonant call to action was voiced with a prophetic note of authority. New occasions teach new duties. Time makes ancient good uncouth. They must upward still and onward who would keep abreast of truth. Lo, before us gleam her campfires, we ourselves must pilgrims be, launch our Mayflower, and steer boldly through the desperate winter sea, nor attempt the future's portal with a past blood-rusted key. Henceforth, throughout that epoch of stormy debate, the young Cambridge poet stood side by side with Whittier, one of the two great champions of the cause in verse. In 1846, Lowell's genius was revealed in a new and thoroughly original vein. The Boston Courier began the publication of a series of poems in genuine Yankee dialect, purporting to be the work of one Hosea Biglow. These compositions were accompanied by introductory letters, commenting on the work in hand, and by editorial notes signed H.W., these initials standing for the Reverend Homer Wilbur, A.M., pastor of the First Church in Jalam, and critical sponsor for his young parishioner, Hosea. The Biglow Papers, as they were called when the series was collected and published in 1848, present in crisp and pungent satire the widely felt opposition of the North to the war with Mexico. Lowell himself was moved by the conviction that the real purpose of the war 
was to expand slave territory and thus voice the protest of new england against this design the work is filled with epigram and sarcasm which of course were most effective at the time which gave them their application it is difficult for us now to appreciate how effective these shafts of lowell's exuberant wit really were but they are yet recognized as the keenest examples of political satire in our own literature and among the best ever written in the same year which brought the publication of the biglow papers eighteen forty eight another humorous poem of some length and of equal pungency appeared this was the fable for critics a witty review of contemporary american literature it was in the strict sense an appreciation of the writers of the time in which compliment is tempered with shrewd hits at their failings a piece of good-natured fun which it is impossible to read without a sense of the critical insight of its author for example there comes emerson first whose rich words every one are like gold sails in temples to hang trophies on whose prose is grand verse while his verse the lord knows is some of it pr no tss, not even prose and so on with the rest of the choir including lowell himself the fable was written rapidly and without thought of publication as the various parts were completed they were sent to a friend in new york eventually they were gathered and printed as dr holmes said capped with a percussion preface and cocked with a title page as apropos as a wink to a joke in sharp contrast to the two works just described is the vision of sir longfall composed and published in the same notable year eighteen forty eight this the most popular and one of the most brilliant of the poet's compositions is a bold excursion into the twilight land of arthurian romance which tennyson was to make his own the exquisite preludes to the two parts of rather slender narrative reveal lowell's power of lyric description at its best and what is so rare as a day in june introduces the familiar passage which everybody recognizes as the supreme tribute of poetry to the season of perfect days and distinguishes the singer as the poet of the month oftener than we are apt to remember these years of lowell's early manhood were invaded by sorrow in eighteen forty seven the parents lost their little daughter blanche scarce a twelvemonth old three years later rose their third child died in infancy the intimate expression of the poet's grief is given in the affecting lyrics she came and went the changeling and the first snowfall in eighteen fifty occurred the death of the poet's mother from whom he had inherited the mystical tendency so clearly felt in his serious work her intensely imaginative mind had become disordered and for several years she had been an inmate of an asylum the cloud had rested heavily over the household but bitterness was still in store in eighteen fifty two while enjoying their first trip abroad the lowells were again bereaved in the death of walter their little son as they were spending the winter in rome 
Meanwhile, Mrs. Lowell's health was declining, and soon after the return home, in 1853, the poet buried the wife of his youth. His weight of sorrow is felt in Palinope, After the Burial, and The Dead House. Something broke my life in two, he said later, and I cannot piece it together again. In the winter of 1854 to 1855, Lowell gave a course of lectures on poetry at the Lowell Institute, a course which established the poet's place as an authority and critic of high rank. At the same time, he was appointed to be Longfellow's successor in the professorship at Harvard. A year was spent in Europe preparatory to entering upon his duties at the college. In 1857, coincidentally with the founding of the Atlantic Monthly, Mr. Lowell became editor-in-chief of that most notable of American magazines. This was also the year of his marriage to his second wife, Miss Frances Dunlap, of Portland, Maine. Four years later, Lowell resigned the editorial chair, but in 1864 became an associate editor with his friend Charles Eliot Norton of the North American Review, a position which he retained ten years. To these two periodicals, Lowell contributed most of his essays on literary and nature subjects, including those which appeared in the volumes Among My Books, two series, 1870 and 1876, and My Study Windows, 1871. Fireside Travels, a volume of reminiscent sketches, among which is the delightfully humorous Cambridge Thirty Years Ago, appeared in 1864. During the years of conflict, Lowell was again moved to wield the pen of satire. The second series of the Biglow Papers appeared in the Atlantic Monthly, beginning in 1862. They were published collectively in 1867. While not so brilliant as the first series, there were nevertheless some notable examples of Yankee humor and patriotic feeling in this group. In The Courtin and Something in the Pastoral Line, the poet exercises the homely dialect upon themes remote from those of war. The farm boy's description of springtime in New England is worthy to stand with that famous picture of June in the vision of Sir Launfal. First come the blackbirds, clattering in tall trees, as settling things in windy congresses. Then saffron swarms swing off from all the willers, so plump they look like yaller caterpillars. Then gray hoshes nuts, little hands unfold, softer'n a baby's bee at three days old. That's Robin Redbreast Almanac. He knows that arter this there's only blossom snows. Nuff said, June's bridesman, poet o' the year. Gladness on wings, the bobolink is here. Half hid in tip-top apple blooms he swings, or climbs against the breeze with quiverin' wings, or given way to in a mock despair, runs down a brook of laughter through the air. Fully in accord with the solemn and ominous spirit of the time are The Washers of the Shroud, written in 1861, On Board the Seventy-Six, written for the seventieth birthday of the poet Bryant in 1864, and the ode recited at the Harvard Commemoration, 
July 21st, 1865. This last, one of Lowell's best compositions, was written at white heat in two days' time, after the poet had despaired of accomplishing anything worthy of the occasion. Then, says he, something gave me a jog, and the whole thing came out of me with a rush. Although not without technical defects, this sonorous ode, which glows with a patriotic fire so characteristic of its author, has come to have a recognized place among the choicest compositions of American verse. The tribute to Lincoln in the poem is perhaps the best ever paid to the memory of the martyred president. Here was a type of the true elder race, and one of Plutarch's men talked with us face to face. Other poems, the accumulated compositions of these years, were included in a new edition of his poems, published in 1869. A volume entitled Under the Willows appeared in the same year, and also The Cathedral, the most important of Lowell's subjective poems. When, in 1874, Louis Agassiz, the great scientist and teacher, died, the event drew from Lowell, who was then in Europe, another masterpiece, the poem Agassiz. After the poet's return, two historic anniversaries were the inspiration of two more notable odes. That read at the 100th anniversary of the fight at Concord Bridge, and under the old elm, on the centenary of Washington's taking command of the American army. An ode for the 4th of July, 1876, completed the group published under the title Three Memorial Poems in 1876. These three compositions confirmed their author's fame as the foremost of our patriotic poets. Lowell's later compositions were collected in the volume Heartseize and Rue. 1888. Like Irving, Mr. Lowell was called upon to serve his country in the responsible and delicate position of a representative at foreign courts. In 1877, he was appointed minister to Spain under President Hayes. He was received in Madrid as a worthy successor of the author of Knickerbocker and of Columbus, but Lowell found no time for literary work while there. The duties of his position, though trying, he discharged with success, and in 1880 was transferred to the English court of St. James. Here, in the most important of all our diplomatic offices, Lowell was brilliantly successful. It is said that he became one of the most popular men in England. The notable writers of the time were all his friends. On all public occasions, he was a welcome guest, and an indispensable participant on occasions of any literary significance. He delivered addresses at the unveiling of busts of Fielding and Coleridge, and was, naturally, the principal speaker when the bust of Longfellow was placed in Westminster Abbey. In these occasional speeches, Lowell was inevitably happy, never more successful than in his famous address on democracy delivered in 1884 on assuming the presidency of the birmingham and midland institute this speech now classic was a clear and thoughtful exposition of the american idea 
a striking interpretation to an English audience of our political system. If the charm of Lowell's personality won the hearts of Englishmen, the tact and firmness with which he conducted the affairs of his office commanded their respect. Lowell never forgot that he was an American, and no one was ever more loyal to the ideals of his country, nor has any of our official representatives done more to cement the friendship between the two countries. After five years' residence as minister in London, and seven years since his departure for Madrid, Lowell returned to America in 1885. He was again alone. His wife had died in England shortly before his return. The remaining years were tinged with the melancholy that comes with the breaking up of old associations and the loss of old friends. His health was not robust, yet he was not inactive. He delivered a number of public addresses, including a course of Lowell Institute lectures in 1887, again upon his favorite subject, Old English Dramatists. His volume of poems, Heartsease and Rue, was published in 1888, together with a volume of political essays. In 1889, he delivered in New York an address upon our literature, and wrote an introduction for a new edition of Isaac Walton's Complete Angler. The summers of 1886, 1887, 1888, and 1889 he passed in England, making his place of sojourn regularly in the ancient town of Whitby, which had been a favorite resort during his official term. His final task was the revision of his works. The poet's home was again at Elmwood, and here the shadow fell upon him. He died August 12, 1891. Lowell might, perhaps, have had a higher place among the poets had he been more careful in his art. His composition is often marred by haste. He gave little time to revision, and even the more important poems were put forth rapidly. But the poet was a master of language and of rhythm. In the literary training which helps to artistic expression, Lowell had the advantage over his contemporaries, except Poe and Longfellow, the quality which, in these two poets, had appealed so universally to readers abroad as well as at home, is apparently lacking in Lowell, but we feel that there is a masculine strength in his verse which we do not find in Longfellow, and a sincerity of utterance that does not appear in Poe. A survey of Lowell's work in literature reveals the versatility of his genius, as well as the general excellence of his achievement. Not only is he the only American writer who has won high distinction in both prose and verse, except Poe, but in both verse and prose he has touched so many keys with such precision and such power that he must be regarded as distinctly the most gifted among American men of letters. He is the only notable critic who has appeared on this side of the Atlantic. His literary essays may even outlive his verse. Through his well-known essay on Dante, his name is permanently associated with the critical study of the Italian poet. In the role of Hosea Biglow, Lowell appears as the strongest of American humorists. Number one of the Biglow papers should be read with its epistolary introduction to understand the dramatic machinery of the satire. 
Number three and number six are good examples of Jose's utterances. Of the second series, the Corton and something in the pastoral line should be read not only as illustrating the poet's best achievement in the use of Yankee dialect, but also as remarkable presentations of the sentimental phases of rural New England life. Lowell's wit is exhibited most brilliantly in The Fable for Critics. To appreciate this, and also something of his keen critical insight, read the passages portraying Emerson, Bryant, Whittier, Cooper, Poe, Holmes, and Lowell himself. The solemn strength of Lowell's patriotism is felt especially in The Present Crisis and the Commemoration Ode. Along with the portraiture of Lincoln in this ode should be read the fifth, sixth, and seventh strophes of Under the Old Elm, for that other masterly description of Washington. As a nature poet, Lowell may be seen at his best in An Indian Summer Reverie, to a dandelion, the preludes in The Vision of Sir Launfal, Under the Willows, and Pictures from Appledore. Lowell was much freer than Longfellow in the lyrical expression of his own joys and griefs. The love poems of his earliest volume tell the story of his own romance, as Palinode, The Wind Harp, After the Burial, and The Dead House are the poignant memorials of his great bereavement. These poems are remarkable for the intensity and frankness of their expression. Wonderfully pathetic are the three poems on the death of the child, the changeling, she came and went, and the first snowfall. On board the seventy-six, in honor of Bryant, to H. W. L., to Whittier on his seventy-fifth birthday, and to Holmes on his seventy-fifth birthday, are occasional poems which have a strong personal interest. Of the miscellaneous poems, select the sonnet to the spirit of Keats, the shepherd of King Admetus, Columbus, the vision of Sir Launfal, the singing leaves, and Turner's old Temeraire. In Lowell's prose writings, the student should read selections, at least from Cambridge thirty years ago, My Garden Acquaintance, and Democracy. Of the literary essays, that upon Chaucer is particularly attractive. The complete works of Lowell are published by Houghton Mifflin Company. The Cambridge edition contains the poems in a single volume. The letters of Lowell, edited by Charles Eliot Norton, should not be overlooked. They have a distinguished place in our literature. Among biographies, that by Horace E. Souter is standard. The most recent life of Lowell, especially suggestive in the critical study of his work and place in literature, is that by Ferris Greenslet, 1905. James Russell Lowe and His Friends, by Edward Everett Hale, is a volume rich in reminiscence of the poet and his generation. T. W. Higginson, in Cheerful Yesterdays, W. D. Howells, in Literary Friends and Acquaintance, and J. T. Trowbridge, in My Own Story, have written of Lowell. There are many noteworthy essays on the poet, of which we may mention especially those by Barrett Wendell, G. W. Curtis, Henry James, G. E. Woodbury, 
and H. W. Maybe. Stedman, Trent, Richardson, and Wendell are authoritative references in criticism. End of Part 3 of Chapter 5